So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, through to verse 4 of chapter 7. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with the darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer, believer have in common with an unbeliever? <coughs> Excuse me. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I'll be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I'll be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts and that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you all. Uh, in case uh, we haven't met, my name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors at uh, Grace Anglican, and as Gav rightly said, youth and young adults is my main gig, so I sort of pastor our evening congregation. But uh, the Lord, in his kindness, allows me to come uh, periodically to this congregation uh, to open the word, which is a great joy for me. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open, and that passage from 2 Corinthians, and I'll lead us uh, together in prayer, and then we'll get stuck into it together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you enable us to understand your word. And we pray that you do that great work this morning and that on account of trembling and rejoicing at your word, we'd be transformed more into the likeness of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. As I've been going through 2 Corinthians at church, perhaps uh, in growth groups, in your own quiet times, you might have noticed that uh, the turns of phrase that the Apostle Paul uses make for actually quite a number of quotable quotes from this part of God's Word. Uh, one of uh, uh, Jono's favourites uh, is um, from, uh, I think, la the last week's passage, for Christ's love compels us, for we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Uh, for some people, earlier on in chapter 1, I bet this is vaguely familiar at least, 
For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Uh, Some people have, as a personal favourite, later on in chapter 12, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. But I've got no way of knowing this. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if the most quoted saying from 2 Corinthians is, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. That's certainly true of my experience. I hear, hear that, I think, more than any other. Do not be yoked unequally with unbelievers. You might have it if you remember it from an older translation. Uh, it is a bit of a standout command from today's passage and also one that, as far as I can tell, is actually quite easily and very often misunderstood. Uh, a yoke, of course, is a thing you'd use to keep a couple of oxen together so that they keep ploughing the field in the same direction. You, know, you don't have a problem with one running off away from the other one. Uh, some people think that the metaphor being used here to be locked together is uh, designed to, to, to bring up for us wedlock, being married. So the, the idea is do not get married to an unbeliever. That's what Paul is saying. Now, the Bible certainly does teach that it's, it's, it's sinful for a Christian to marry a non-Christian, that's true, but I'm not at all convinced that that's what Paul means here in chapter 6. Some people rightly point out that the oxen who are yoked are yoked together in order to work together. So the teaching is that Christians aren't to work with or work alongside non-Christians. But if that were the case, it's very strange that Jesus himself envisaged Christians and non-Christians working together. He says on the day, the great day that the Son of Man is revealed, two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken, the other left. That's Luke 17. Again, throughout church history, there have been Christians who assume that to not be yoked with unbelievers means have absolutely nothing to do with the non-Christian world. Don't have anything to do with anyone outside of God's kingdom. And that's actually been a real thing that's happened many times throughout church history. Cloisters, monasteries, closed Christian communities and cults have all arisen at various times and places. But something that the Apostle Paul himself said to the Corinthian church in an earlier correspondence shows that that can't possibly be the way to go. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy swindlers, idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy and idolater or slanderer, or drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. So yes, there are people we must not associate with, but clearly that cannot mean removing yourself entirely from the, the, the unchristian world. So what does it mean to not be yoked together? with an unbeliever. And how do we apply and obey that, in my experience at least, off-quoted uh, command from this part of God's Word? Well, naturally, and those who know me will expect this, of course, we're going to look at the whole section together, starting from the first verse, uh, 6 uh, verse 1, uh, to get the idea, sort of the grand context. Paul writes, as God's co-workers, we urge you, Corinthians, not to receive God's grace 
in vain. For he says, in the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour, now is the day of salvation. Well, the broad context of this part is about not receiving God's grace in vain. The time of God's favour and forgiveness is now. So you don't want to waste it. You don't want to receive it in vain. You want to make sure that if you've received God's grace, that is, if you acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, which I certainly hope you all do, that you therefore spread the word effectively. You don't want to keep it to yourself. You want to see effective gospel ministry taking place. I've no doubt many of us will remember that tragic event of the Port Arthur Massacre where uh, this guy, Martin Bryant, went on a random shooting spree and killed 35 people for no reason other than his own madness. In response, the then Howard government declared a national amnesty. That is a period whereby anyone in possession of illegal firearms or weapons could come and hand them into the police and there would be no charges, no questions asked. As a matter of fact, in some cases you get paid. There was, there was a buyback scheme initiated at one point. Now alarmingly, there were a lot more illegal weapons handed in than the Australian people or the government expected. But once the amnesty period was over, the penalty would be very firm and without leniency. And so it is currently with God. Jesus has died to pay for all sin and he's holding off returning for the final judgment such that the day of salvation is now. Now is the time of God's favour where anyone can turn in repentance and find forgiveness before it's too late. So, for we who are saved, we don't want to receive that amazing grace in vain. We want to do all we can to see others find forgiveness during the period of God's great amnesty. And that's why Paul is telling these Corinthians what makes for a credible ministry rather than an ineffective one. So he continues, the immediate next verse, this is what shows you he's speaking about that not receiving the grace in vain is about doing credible ministry. Verse 3, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And then he goes on with that big list that you all heard during the reading of all the kinds of things that make for credible ministry, the hardships, the beatings, the sleepless nights, etc. All good gospel ministry is hard. Because we follow the suffering servant and we take up our cross. The millionaire at the megachurch, the celebrity prosperity preacher, they look about as far away from the suffering servant they supposedly follow as you can get. And they seem to keep falling into scandal and hence discrediting the gospel. Paul is very different to that. Look how beat up I am. Look how wrecked I am. And when you consider 2 Corinthians as a whole, you come to realise that that's actually one of the big issues that Paul's sorting out in this letter. And it's an issue that provides some very important context for understanding the command to not be yoked together 
with unbelievers. See, a bit later on in the letter. We'll learn that after Paul originally established the church in Corinth, and then he moved on, that not surprisingly, a bunch of false teachers came along. Paul had warned about it, not to mention Jesus and basically every writer of the New Testament. But of course, the false teacher always wears a convincing disguise. In this case, it was the disguise of worldly wealth and success. And the Corinthians had been sucked in by it well and truly. Listen to what Paul says about this from later on in the same letter. He writes, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I am jealous for you, you Corinthians, with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you receive, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think that I am the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? You see, the Corinthians would have known this straight away, but for us, we kind of have to piece it together. But when we do piece it together, we work out that there are these false teachers called super apostles who fit in very nicely with the worldly cultural standards of their day. In Greek culture, the esteemed philosophers would demand payment for their eloquent orations. You don't believe me? Read some Plato or Socrates, which none of you will. Has anyone ever read any Plato or Socrates? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, it's, it's very old. But they were trained in what we might call the classics, of, of course, of their time. And when you Christianise that kind of thing, you get persuasive so-called gospel teachers who show themselves to be credible on the basis of how highly commended they come by others and how much they get paid by their hearers for their eloquent speaking. It'd be kind of like, you know, if you gave to gospel ministry, that, just on the basis of how good your, your preacher's sermon was that day sort of thing, like, yeah, that kind of deal, which please don't do because that will be bad. You could imagine one of those super apostles in the Corinthian church talking about the Apostle Paul or others like him. Paul, that guy's an amateur. He doesn't even get paid for his teaching. You see what happened to him in Macedonia? How he got so rejected, he was so offensive that people booted him out of their cities. Look, I know he meant well, but guys, you need to level up. You don't want a preacher with bruises and cuts on his face, do you? You want the successful rich guy with a magazine face. He's obviously the one whose ministry is credible. He's obviously the one whose ministry is successful. But of course, as I hope you and I know, the, that's the kind of, if that's the kind of messenger you are, then the message you present can't possibly be the message of the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but lowered himself to be the slave of all. Hence, the Apostle Paul would fearlessly and earnestly declare that I will keep on doing what I am doing, 
in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising that if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. And so the super apostles who thrive on expressions of worldly power rather than heavenly weakness, the agents of Satan who pretend to be apostles but who look so unlike Jesus, there's no way they can be known by him. The very ornate vases as opposed to the cracking jars of clay if you like. They're leading the Corinthians astray with a different Jesus and a different gospel. And now we see the big picture of what's going on here in Corinth as we come back to our passage for today, we start to understand why Paul is worried and why he's pleading with the Corinthian church to, strange as this sounds, be loyal to him, to be accepting and embracing of him. I'm going to read for you from verse 11 of chapter 6, 11 to 13, and then I'm immediately going to jump to 7 verse 2, but apart from the fact I've just told you that, you wouldn't realise. It's just one thought that Paul is actually speaking about when he says, I want you to be loyal to me. Have have a listen as I do it, then we'll, we'll deal with a bit in the middle, right? So 6 from verse 11, We, that is Paul and his apostles, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. You can get the sense of what he's sort of longing for. He's basically saying, embrace me and my offsiders as the bearers of the true apostolic gospel. And thankfully, we will learn, and we'll see it next week, it's uh, chapter 7, verse 7, that the Corinthians do still indeed embrace Paul. Uh, When Paul's co-worker Titus went uh, for a visit to Corinth and then came back, he gave the report that the Corinthians, yes, still do have a longing for Paul. They have a deep sorrow at one of his previous rebukes and they've got a great concern for his well-being. But the other thing that Paul is saying, the reason he diverts between those two bits of text to to the chunk in the middle to give it, I think, pride of place, is that they can't have it both ways. They can't embrace the true apostolic gospel of the suffering Messiah through his chosen apostle Paul and yet also at the same time remain infatuated with those worldly prosperity preachers who proclaim a different Jesus. To put it another way, these Corinthians will need to stop being yoked together with unbelievers. It's the age-old problem of tolerance, really. True tolerance is something uh, very much that originates, I think, with Christians. 
Uh, in Islam, you enforce a tax on the infidel. In Rwanda, if you're a Tutsi, you want to kill the Hutus, etc. But in God's kingdom, we pray for all men. And we pray that our secular government will enable us to live peaceful and quiet lives amidst our neighbours who come in all sort of stripes and shades. But just as there is a limit to God's tolerance, so there must also be a limit to ours. And false teaching, and even more, much more, false teachers are not to be tolerated in the household of the true and living God. Hence we come to big, uh, Paul's big teaching point from verse 14. This is in the middle of that plea. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Which, by the way, is just another nickname for the devil. Or what does a believer have in common? With an unbeliever. Note, believer and unbeliever. This is, you know, harking back to, to verse 14. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and I'll walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, you always know Paul's bringing out the big guns when he has a barrage of Old Testament scriptural quotes to make his point. See, it's always been the case that if God graciously dwells among you, that it's therefore thankless, misguided and sinful to corrupt his saving presence by introducing false gods and therefore, in this context, false teachers. Our God is rightly a jealous God. And the reason Paul can refer to his own character and conduct as a testimony that he's on the side of truth, unlike the super-apostles, is because it's always the case that the character of the messenger tells you something about the character of the message. We know this instinctively, by the way. Here's a simple, easy example. When the surgeon walks out of the operating theatre, slumps the shoulders, looks down at the ground, screws up the face, right? You already know the kind of message that he, she is going to deliver, don't you? Similarly, when the Apostle Paul endures beatings and hardships and sleepless nights and he looks like a wreck and yet somehow he keeps going because he's, you know, like crushed but not destroyed, it's patently obvious that the message he thoroughly believes and preaches is one whereby such horrific things can yet be considered light and momentary troubles that are preparing us for eternal glory, as he says earlier in 2 Corinthians. You know that he is taking up his cross to follow the suffering servant who would then enter his glory. He's not taking up his expensive suit to follow the great influencer who would establish his empire on earth. And so the immediate application of the command to not be yoked with unbelievers is actually to stop tolerating false teachers in the household of God. Guys, I've got to tell you, on the national front, our denomination... Anglican, is probably not doing very well in this regard. 
outside of Sydney Diocese, Armidale Diocese, to a lesser extent Bathurst and Canberra Goulburn Diocese, it's actually increasingly hard and has been for a long time to find Anglican churches led by Bible-believing clergy. Recently, at our National Synod, a motion was put forward that the Synod shall affirm that according to the Bible, marriage is something that happens between a man and a woman, a male and a female. The majority of the laity voted in favour. The majority of the clergy voted in favour, though majority is like about 60%, right? So, yeah. But the majority of the bishops would not affirm that according to the Bible, marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, thanks to God, in our neck of the woods, so Sydney Diocese sort of thing, we've got a solid theological college. Uh, More College is not just a Bible college, it's a theological college. It teaches its students to think biblically and teach the scriptures. And it's also pretty hard for an Anglican clergyman to become a celebrity preacher and even hard for them to make loads of money. We've got a whole lot of stuff in place that says, thus far you shall go and no farther, right? And I like that. But there are always serious threats. Uh, If you've been around here for a while, you've probably noticed that, uh, for example, in our selection of congregational songs, that we're careful not to choose songs produced by organisations that promote and propagate false teaching, lest we end up advertising and funding false teachers at the very point we're engaged in a ministry of the word. Sadly, though, that is not the case for a great number of Anglican churches, even here in Sydney. But in saying yes to Paul and the apostolic gospel, the Corinthian church had to ensure they wouldn't yoke themselves to these unbelieving super apostles. And that shouldn't take any of us by surprise because all over the Bible, it is impressed upon us time and time again that you're not saying yes to the truth unless you are also saying no to the lie. You can see why the super apostles wouldn't like this and why, frankly, a lot of people don't like this, but it's what Paul bangs on about. You're not saying yes to the truth unless you're saying no to the lie. But whilst that is the immediate application, Paul can't help, because he's Paul, and I wouldn't either, he can't help but to move also towards a broader application. In the very next verse, given that God lives among his church, the obvious thing is not only to stop tolerating false teachers, but also to stop tolerating anything that arouses our holy God towards jealousy. So 7 verse 1, Therefore, since we have these promises, the promises that God will live and walk among us and we'll be his temple, since we have those promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves not only from false teachers, but from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. It's in line with one of those Old Testament quotes that he gave us from verse 17, come out from them and be separate. He broadens that to to all of life. The basic idea is that whilst there are all sorts of things that you and I should love and enjoy about God's world, all sorts of things we ought to enjoy and receive with thanksgiving, 
that there must always yet be a discernible degree of distance between the Christian and the culture, between the children of God and the children of the devil, between the redeemed and the reprobate, between the clean and the contaminated. Touch no unclean thing. The joy of knowing our heavenly father who is jealous for his children is ours, precisely because the world has been crucified to us and we to the world, Galatians 6. So, for example, if you know that the group of people you're about to go out with next week are all likely to drink to excess and you also happen to be one of those people that can very easily fall into temptation to join in with them, then why on earth are you even thinking of going? You'll feel dirty for contaminating God's life-giving spirit that dwells within you with the idolatry and debauchery that drunkenness always brings. If you know that that movie or TV show is one that normalises, celebrates and glorifies sexual immorality, adultery or fornication, basically, if it's Netflix, and if you know that you can very easily get sucked in to that narrative and it makes you want to think the same way, then why on earth are you even considering watching it? The broader application of not being yoked together with unbelievers can be summed up as also you're not saying yes to Jesus unless you are also saying no to ungodliness. It's the same one as the first one, but just broaden. That's what Paul does. And by the way, it is in this vein that there is a certain rightness to invoking the don't be yoked together with unbelievers command as a reason not to date or marry a non-Christian. That's not the primary application, but it is certainly one of the broader applications of this part of God's word. You should feel kind of irked at the thought of taking a part of God's holy temple, the holy temple of the jealous God, and uniting it with something that dwells in the dominion of darkness. That should be yucky. Finally, remembering that Paul also taught that we're not at all to remove ourselves from the world, oh, there it is, but to live in peace with our neighbours, we need to practice the art of holding some degree of distance from our fallen world, yes, but without being aloof, without the so-called holier-than-thou attitude. Of course, that's really difficult because God does, in fact, literally dwell within and amongst his people by his spirit so in reality we are actually holier than now which is kind of awkward uh, but of course none of it's to our credit it's all solely by the grace of God who gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life uh, looking back on those last few verses it's precisely because we have the wonderful promises of God that he will live among us, that he will walk among us, that he will be a father to us and we're his children through our undeserved adoption that gives us the motivation. The great motivator to stop tolerating false teachers and to strive for godliness over worldliness is not that we need to jump through the hoops to win the favour of our, you know, God who looks down his nose, no, no. 
It's the compelling love that he's given us through Christ. To sum up the third and final of my very greedy three-part main point, it's, and this is probably the most important one, thankfully, God has already said yes to us in Christ. He is our Heavenly Father. He does live and walk among us. That's the motivation for us to come out from the things that sully his divinity, his holiness, his spirit that walks among us. It's the kind of motivation that doesn't say, well, I hope I'm good enough for God. It's because God has already made me good enough for him. And I'm like, well, I therefore do not want to be yoked with those unbelievers. I do therefore not want to be contaminated with those unclean things. And ultimately, that's the way you remove the hindrance to good gospel ministry in this day of the Lord's favour and salvation. God in his great kindness has called us out of the world and into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins and in whom we're being prepared for an eternal glory. It's our character compelled by the love of Christ as we live within that reality that actually makes for not taking the grace of God in vain. Let me conclude in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace that undeserving sinners like us through the blood of Jesus have been reconciled to you, not only by being forgiven, but by being adopted into your family as your prized and precious sons and daughters. And for the wonderful promise that you live and dwell within and among us. And because of that great grace that you give currently and continue to give until Jesus returns, May we be ever compelled to separate ourselves from the unclean things. May we be intolerant of false teachers. Not for the sake of feeling good about being right or looking out down our nose, but for the sake of your jealousy, which we prize so much and so rightly. Father, where we've embraced false teachers or false teaching, please help us to repent. Where we've embraced the kinds of things that really introduce idols into your temple, may we also repent. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.